and I want to invite you to turn to Paul's second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We gave our attention to this text last week. Today we're going to take a second look at verses 16 and 17 under this banner of habits of grace. January um, is typically the season when our mailboxes start to fill with tax documents and reports of annual earnings and summary statements of profits we've gained from our bulging savings accounts and investments. And uh, actually, those with margin, financial margin to save and invest, they really like to know uh, how their investments are doing. You know, that, that fund only made... 2% this year, but my portfolio grew by 10%. Investors like to see profit. They want to know that what they put in has produced gain. According to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the word of God is profitable and intended by God to produce gain. So how do you know whether or not God's Word is generating anything? How do we determine the profitability of Scripture? That's the question that we want to give attention to today. So I want to invite you to follow along. I'm going to read again 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And if you're physically able, would you please stand? And these are the words of God through the Apostle Paul. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God, or the woman of God, the child of God, may be complete equipped for every good work. This is God's Word, holy, authoritative, life-giving. Let's pray together. We continue, Lord, to marvel at the fact that Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, sustainer, creator, redeemer, would so particularly, specifically, communicate yourself to your people. We are, this is a generous gift from a generous king. And uh, we position ourselves here together uh, in the path of this lavish, overwhelming grace that accomplishes so much. And we pray that your, your spirit, your grace, you, O oh God, would get things done among us today. That we would profit from your word. Speak, Lord. We listen to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So according to scripture itself, scripture intake is a profit-making venture. Verse 16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and, what does it say, is profitable. 
And last week we considered the means by which we may profit from God's word. We profit from God's word by careful reading, hearing God's word. We profit from God's word by meditating, contemplating, thinking on God's word. We profit from God's word by working it deeply into our souls. And we do that by thoughtful praying of God's word. Others have found memorizing God's word to be a great advantage for just massaging it into our souls. And we experience some of the most tangible gains from God's word by intentionally entrusting ourselves to the promises of God's word. Several times this last week, I I found myself gaining encouragement and peace, peace from the promise of Psalm 34.10, which says, Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And, you know, here I am, like, mindful that I'm a black hole of need. Just need all the time. And uh, I, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to think. And there is God breathing out aloha. Forehead to forehead, nose to nose, exhaling into my soul. Psalm 34.10, when I seek the Lord, he will supply what I need in order to accomplish the very thing he has called me to do. For me, that is gain. For God's word, that is profit. So according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God. Or maybe we should say expired by God. The breath of God, the Spirit of God brought this, this word into being. And it is intended by God to get things done in us and through us. In other words, the profitability of God's word is measured in terms of the fulfillment of the purposes of God's word. A.W. Pink wrote a long time ago, the word of God may be taken up from various motives. Some read it to satisfy their literary pride. In certain circles, it has become both the respectable and popular thing to obtain a general acquaintance with the contents of the Bible simply because it is regarded as an educational defect to be ignorant of them. Some read it to satisfy their sense of curiosity as they might any other book of note. Others read it to satisfy their so-called sectarian pride. They consider it a duty to be well-versed in the particular tenets of their own denomination or tribe. So, and so search eagerly for proof texts in support of our doctrines. And yet others read it for the purpose of being able to argue successfully with those who differ from them. But in all this, There is no thought of God, no yearning for spiritual edification, and therefore, no real benefit to the soul. Pastor Pink (laughs) wrote that in 1921. That's a hundred years ago. 
And a hundred years later, there are those who read the Bible for no greater end than intellectual engagement with classic literature. There are those who read the Bible for no greater gain than defining who's in and who's out of their religious tribe. There are those who read the Bible for no profit other than the rush that they get out of a bull session or competition and debate. And concerning those ends, I believe Pink is correct when he says, no real benefit there, no profit, no gain. But unprofitable Bible intake is even more pervasive. Most of us are mindful of those times when we sit down, we sat down, I mentioned this last week, we, we sat down, we opened our Bible, we, we read our Bible, we closed our Bible, and then we have this, we, we feel this strange but remarkably common sensation of amnesia. Like, what just happened? You know? <laughs> Why can't I remember anything about the last 20 or 30 minutes? Is there any real benefit, any profit, any gain? So what then does a true profiting from God's word consist? And how do we know if our reading and our hearing and our meditating and our thinking and our praying and our entrusting is producing gain? I believe the means by which we determine the profitability of Scripture, they're, they're actually embedded right here in the text of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. How do we discern whether or not our intake of God's Word equals profiting from God's Word? Well, let's look at some possibilities here. First of all, we look at ourselves and we seek to discern if there is evidence that I am delighting in all of God's perfections. I say delighting in because it really is a matter of affection and attitude. And I say all of God's perfections because we have a tendency to pick and choose which ones we like and respond to. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That is, all Scripture is God's self-disclosure of all that God is. And though it is not communicated explicitly, perhaps, in this text, we see God's perfections just oozing out of every word. We, we read that Scripture is profitable for teaching. Teaching what? Teaching who God is. Teaching what God's will is. Scripture is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Well, righteousness according to whose standard? Who defines right and wrong? Who judges something's rightness or wrongness? Who has the authority, the ultimate authority to instruct us, to adjust us, or discipline us in matters of morality? God and God alone. So here's one way by which we discern the profitability of God's word in our lives. Do, ask yourself, do, do I take delight... <laughs> In God's righteousness? 
Am I pleased with the fact that God is and always will be perfect in his rightness? God himself is the very definition of moral right and wrong. And what makes God the perfect judge? (laughs) Can I be happy with a God who acts as my judge? Holding my life up to his standard of right and wrong. Psalm 9 verses 7 and 8. I just read this yesterday morning. The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. You know, if we, if we speak of God as a father, as a friend, even as a generous king, right? <laughs> Helper, just so good. One who loves us despite all of our weaknesses and folly and sin. Man, faces light up and, ah, you know, you just, you know, we're, it's, it's such a warm, fuzzy feeling. And, you know, we're just right in the sweet spot of our cultural wavelength. But, you know, we speak of God as possessing infallible righteousness with unimpeachable authority to dictate human identity and who judges all moral right and wrong well (laughs) see now we're interfering with people's autonomy minds recoil and to speak of God this way it's taken as hate speech how does it land on you when the scripture says Psalm 75, 7, it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Hebrews 12, 23 says, God is the judge of all. A judge is a person with authority. and God is a judge with ultimate authority. God is a judge with perfect authority. He is a perfect judge. And he communicates his judgments through The scriptures. And when he judges our attitudes and our actions as right by his standards, he commends us. And when he judges our attitudes and actions as wrong by his standards or insufficient by his moral standards, he reproves. He reproves. He has a firm word. He communicates correction. He disciplines. That's that's what it means to be trained in righteousness. Because there's right and there's wrong. And God also reproves and corrects and trains and adjusts because He cares. Isn't the reason that we have hard conversations with, with those we love Because we care. When we avoid uncomfortable words of reproof or hold up a matter for correction, isn't it ultimately because we don't really care? Loved ones, God is perfectly right. His judgments are perfectly 
fair, his reproof and correction are perfectly balanced with firmness and calmness, and it's all because he perfectly cares. He cares for us, he cares for his glory, namely the display, the display of all his perfections. That's what glory means. It's, it's God's perfections going public for all to see. And he means for us to experience the fullness of joy that can only be found in delighting in all, not some, all of his perfections. And so, one way that we can discern if God's word is profitable is when we delight in all the things that are true about God as they are revealed in the scriptures. So ask yourself, do do I delight in God's ultimate rule and authority over me? Do I delight in God's prerogative to define what is morally right and wrong? Do I delight in God as judge of my attitudes and actions? Do I accept God's reproof as an expression of perfection? The perfection of his care for me and his aim that I might experience my deepest joy and satisfaction in all that he is. And perhaps there's some other perfections. <laughs> he has a few more. Perhaps there are other perfections in God, communicated in God's word, that are irksome to you. Things like God's wrath. Or God's sovereignty and salvation. Or God's providence over all evil. These can be categories of God's perfections where we get stuck. Where there's no gain. And may I suggest that rather than avoiding them or nursing silent grudges against these perfections, that you would honestly and carefully read God's word. Read God's word and put the scripture to work and see what treasures you may find. God's word is profitable when we are delighting in all of God's perfections. Here's the second thing. And closely related to that is um, a practical means of discerning the profitability of God's word, is asking ourselves the question, am I bending my will to the authority of my Father in heaven? Am I bending my will to his will, his authority? Because you see, it's one thing to to acknowledge him as he is, And maybe feel some wonder and awe about that. It's another thing entirely to do something with that. Am I obedient to God's commands? That's just putting it as bluntly as I can. If God is infinitely right and infinitely and eternally committed to what is most right, then am I willing to accept reproof from my heavenly Father? Am I willing to be corrected by my heavenly Father? Am I humble and tender-hearted when the Scriptures show me when I've drifted from God's perfectly righteous will? Or is my impulse to push, to bristle and just push back? And disobey. 
1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6 says, And by this we know that we've come to know Him, if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His words, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in Him, joined to Him, in union with Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. He being Jesus. So now clearly, and obviously, <laughs> you read that, you know, none of us, none of us keep God's commandments perfectly. We just thought about this a few weeks ago. Christians sin. It's because remnants of sin's corruption remain in the heart of every Christian. That we're going to fight throughout our lives. And therefore the point of 1 John 2, 3-6 is that Christians who are profiting from God's word, they desire holiness and they fight the fight of faith. And a further profitability of scripture lies in the fact that God's word supplies all that we need to do that. The psalmist prays in Psalm 119, verse 35, Lead me. In other words, cause me to go in the paths of your commandments, for I delight in it. I delight in that path, the path of your commandments. We would all do well to spend un hurried time with the entire 119th Psalm. It is a celebration, I mean, bigger than the 4th of July or New Year's. It is a celebration of the profitability of God's Word. Listen to this. Psalm 119, these are the opening verses. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Blessed being happy. Happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. And in the original text, of course, there's all these exclamation points and you know, stuff like that. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. <laughs> you hear the tone of that? I mean, he's just having a great time. You would think that the psalmist had just won like Powerball or something. In fact, the psalmist thinks he won Powerball. Look at Psalm 119.72. The, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Certainly then, one of the most clear and discernible evidences of the profitability of God's word in our lives is conformity to and compliance with the commands of God's word in our lives. So, so what, if, what if we took a, a, a bit of a personal inventory of specific besetting sins? 
Or what if we took an inventory of all the sins that we're kind of, you know, comfortable just leaving alone? The ones that we do all the time, but, you know, it's just the way it is. What if we took a personal inventory of these habits of disobedience, these habits of destructive speech or habits of pride and self-pity or habits of whatever they might be, and with the power of God's grace poured out lavishly upon us through the presence of the Holy Spirit together with the prayers of our brothers and sisters in Christ and the incredible promise of profitability in God's word, that nagging sin, be it willful commission or willful omission, it's going to come under relentless attack. For I know God's word is profitable when I am bending my will to the revealed will of God in Scripture. Third, another way of discerning the Bible's profitability in our lives is maybe by asking ourselves the question, am I engaging in the advance of God's kingdom on earth? Is there discernible evidence pointing to my involvement in the mission of God? And I get that because according to 2 Timothy 3.17, it's clear that the goal, that the end of profiting from God's word is practical engagement in good works. Namely, works that further the purpose of God on earth. And God's ultimate purpose is that his glorious perfections might be seen and enjoyed and praised in all the world. We see this in Numbers 14.21. Truly, as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Habakkuk 2.14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And it's with that purpose in view that Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, 9, and 10. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is being done in heaven. What's he instructing us to pray for? Jesus is teaching us to ask God to make his name to be hallowed and revered, to be regarded, to be praised. He's teaching us to ask God to cause his kingly rule and his reign and his dominion and the purpose of his will to be accomplished here on earth, now, today, in the same way that it is being accomplished right now, today, in heaven. Father, assert your authority. Assert your power. Cause your dominion to spread throughout the world. 
Cause the beauty of your perfections to be revealed and to be enjoyed and praised. Cause your righteousness to be esteemed and valued. Cause some from every tongue and tribe and nation people to be saved. Cause your commands to be obeyed. Cause the realm where your rule and your reign and your kingship extends to fill the earth. When God's word is generating profit, that's how God's people pray. And then after Jesus taught his disciples how they ought to pray, well, then he sent them out to work on that. (laughs) He, He vests his people with his very own authority, deputizing them, deploying them to proclaim the presence of his kingdom, and to demonstrate by the Spirit the power and authority of His kingdom. And and they went out. They went out calling people to repent of their sins, exhorting them to put themselves under the authority of God's Word, and out they went, demonstrating the, the authenticity of these truths and these claims that God has made. And they did that. Those truths of God's authority and dominion were vindicated and validated by them healing people of their diseases and setting people free from every manifestation of demonic rule and reign, Satan's rule and reign. And and in the book of Acts, we see and hear statements of the profitability of God's word like this. Acts 6, 7. And the word of God continued to increase. That's gain. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Acts 12, 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And then they gathered those redeemed and those who had profited from God's word into assemblies that portray the beauty of Jesus. And these assemblies are called churches. And in these churches, the scriptures would be proclaimed and explained. And they did that because the prophet of, this, of the scriptures is, is vibrant and sustaining of spiritual life. It generates faith. It makes stuff happen. It pull, builds people together. In Psalm 19 verse 7, says, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. <laughs> wow. That's what God's word does. And churches happen because of that. And churches become visible displays of a gospel culture. They're a picture of the perfections of God in and through the person of Christ. And in and through the people of Christ. Just think of that. Scripture is profitable to us in the sense that it just fills us out. It makes us whole. It heals. It straightens. 
it trains and equips us in order that we might be more fruitful in the service of our king for the advancement of his kingdom on earth. So, with respect to the profitability of God's word in our lives, we might ask, well, am I, am I walking in the, the good of the works for which the Lord has prepared me and prepared for me? And trained me. And deposited gifts and strengths and talents and experiences. And then de- deployed me. What am I doing? That is a stewardship of that. And contributing to the advancement of God's rule and reign in all of its manifestations. What am I doing? That is diminishing Satan's rule and reign in all of its manifestations. And maybe more specifically, what am I doing that, that builds up and strengthens gospel community in, this, in my church? Finally, I believe that we can be certain that God's word is profiting us when our character is being shaped and bearing the fruit of our holy Union with the person of Jesus Christ. According to 2 Timothy 3.16, Scripture is profitable in the sense that it trains us in righteousness. Of course, what immediately comes to our minds is, you know, trains us in our attitudes and actions as to what's right and wrong. But, I believe that it's so crucial for us to never lose sight when, when we're talking about righteousness. When we're talking about our living in righteousness, we must never, ever lose sight of the fact that we have no righteousness in and of ourselves. To be trained in righteousness begins with knowing and owning the truth that we're righteous with the righteousness of another. J.I. Packer writes this summary statement. He says, God's wrath is his righteousness reacting against unrighteousness. It shows itself in retributive justice. Retributive justice. That's, that's not something we want to be on the receiving end of. But Jesus Christ has shielded us from the nightmare prospect of retributive justice by becoming our representative substitute in obedience to his Father's will, and receiving the wages of our sin in our place on the cross. And by this means, justice has been done for the sins of all that will ever be pardoned were judged and punished in the person of the Son of God. And it's on this basis that pardon is now offered to us offenders. Redeeming love and retributive justice joined hands, so to speak, at Calvary. For there God showed himself to be just 
and the justifier of anyone who has faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul summarized it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in order to be trained in righteousness, one must first be counted righteous. In order to be trained in righteousness, one must first be counted righteous by God with the righteousness of God credited to us by grace through faith in the Son of God. So I like the way this fresh statement of faith produced now by Sovereign Grace Churches explains it. It says, compelled by grace, believers grow in the knowledge of God Obey Christ's commands, walk by the Spirit, kill sin, and pursue God's priorities and purposes. That, that, that's what it looks like to practice righteousness. Among the many public and private means, now, now we're talking about habits of grace, the public and private mean, means of grace, the Word of God, Prayer, fellowship are primary instruments of our own sanctification, fostering communion with God and training us together to glorify Him, love others, and testify to Christ in the world. And the most discernible fruits produced in our lives in union with Christ, I believe, are things like gratitude. Are we a thankful people? You want to know if God's word is profiting, profitable? Are you thankful? Is there gratitude? How about humility? How about servanthood? How about generosity? How about joy? How about godliness? How about lay down your life Christ-centered community with other brothers and sisters. You want to know how profitable God's word is in your life? Then look and see. Is there evidence of gratitude and humility and servanthood and generosity? Is being joined to Jesus and the, the habit of positioning oneself in the path of God's word, bearing the fruit of joy and growing godliness and lay down my life love for the brothers and sisters in my spiritual community? Loved ones, moving forward in 2021, my prayer is that we might be a people fully engaged, fully engaged in reading and hearing and meditating and praying and entrusting ourselves to the promises in this book. And as we do, may God cause his word to be visibly and discernibly profitable. And that this gain would be apparent in pronounced ways through growing joy in all of God's perfections. Humble submission to the authority of God's will. Vital engagement in the advancement of God's kingdom on earth through the local church. And character, the character of Jesus shining in us and through us as a spiritual community to the glory of God. Let's pray.
there's some pretty audacious things that you have promised, Lord, to reveal and accomplish, get done in the lives of your people as we would take in your breath, take in your word, and and seek you and pray. You will withhold no good thing that we need to accomplish what you have called us to do if we would seek you and entrust ourselves to the things that you have promised to be for us in the person of Jesus, the promises that you've made to us in this book. So I would ask that for the people of Emmaus Road Church, God, for the the saints throughout the city of Sioux Falls in every church, for those who we would consider brothers and sisters in Christ, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit as your word is fed upon. May it be food that this world knows not of. And may our souls be satisfied and you get much glory, we ask in Jesus' name.